Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we feature a reading and a conversation about the pandemic lockdowns and how people tried to get through them. They contain stories sad and funny and strange and completely every day. We thought you'd want to hear them as we all begin to reckon with this strange and challenging time. First up is Catherine D. Morgan, who read her short essay, Wish You Were Here, at the Portland Art Museum as part of the 2020 Portland Book Festival. I closed my eyes, a sweaty canned margarita clutched in my right hand, and began to dance around my apartment. The MTV unplugged version of Mariah Carey's Emotions is blaring from my speakers. I'm drunkenly attempting to sing along, missing high note after high note, but not giving a single damn about it. The can says mango margarita, but tastes more like straight tequila with a whisper of mango, so it's not as sweet as I would normally like it, but I choke it down anyway. Even with all my effort, I'm only halfway through the can. It does not matter, though. This is the most alive that I've felt in weeks. I turn the volume up. The music is too loud, but I wonder if it is mostly because I've lived here for over a year and my walls are still mostly empty. I glance at the pile of artwork that I have accumulated that has continued to grow in the corner and shrug. This is a quarantine activity for another day. I shake my body, moving my hips, allowing Mariah to help me get to where I need to go. I twist and turn, whipping all 230 pounds around like God himself intended. It doesn't matter that I can't dance because nothing matters more than this feeling. Drunk Catherine doesn't care what she looks like. Drunk Catherine doesn't need to worry about surviving. She just wants to be in the moment. When the final notes of emotions fade out, I stop moving, realizing how quiet and unwelcoming the space feels. After a moment, the old pipes in my bathroom begin to creak, clanging right on schedule. I look around. The television is still on, but I don't recognize the show. The lights in my living room are brighter than I remember them being. I am finally at the bottom of the can, and I resist the urge to crack open another one. There's a pandemic, and I don't have anywhere else to go, but I've managed to convince myself that I still need to keep a schedule. I need to experience the emotions that come with clocking in and out every day. Right now, I don't want the party to end. I grab my phone, texting my friends as I walk into the bathroom to take a shower. I strip, peeling off the outfit that I've been wearing consistently for the past three days, and toss it on the floor. At a habit, I sniff my armpits, recoiling at the scent. Jesus Christ, I mutter to myself, but honestly, I'm a little proud of how disgusting I can be. I cue up my favorite getting ready playlist, belting out Misery Business by Paramore as I climb into my blue and white clawfoot tub. The hot water splashes on my skin, the steam coating the mirror until I can no longer make out my shape through the shower curtain. I stop my feet around to the chorus of Married and Night, taking note of how I should remove the toenail polish that I've been wearing since January. By the time that I get out and dry myself uh, off, Shania Twain is playing, and I'm only trying to have a good time. I skip to the bedroom, reflecting on my naked body in the mirror, noticing that there are still warm beads of water rolling down the sides of my flesh, dripping onto the hardwood floors. I twist my body around, noticing the package of rolls on my back. I am nothing but flesh. My stomach hangs. Every part of my body looks bigger than it did last week. I begin to laugh to myself because if there was any time to hate my body, it would be now when there's no one else around to correct me. I grab my flesh and I hold on to it. I used to pinch it, the sharp pain dissolving after a few minutes, which made me want to grab it again and again. I don't miss the red marks from pinching. I don't miss the sobbing, the heartache, the overwhelming urge to fix. I grin at myself, the liquor still giving me a hide I didn't know that I needed. I'm so happy that I don't hate you right now, I giggle, slapping my bare I almost lean into the mirror to kiss myself, as if I'm a drunk girl in a nightclub bathroom, but I stop short of doing so. Finally, I turn the playlist off. I put on a clean red shirt 
leaving my bottom half bare so it could air dry. I look like Winnie the Pooh, I chuckle as I lie down on my bed on top of sheets that need to be washed yet again. I'm drunk, so I want to FaceTime someone. I open my contest list, scrolling to see who I can surprise. I check the time. It's only 9.30 p.m. I ask around. One couple is having dinner, but suggests that we schedule a time to video chat sometime that week. Another friend mentions that he's about to watch a movie, presumably with his partner. I scroll for a few more minutes, growing discouraged with every flick of my finger. I'm suddenly aware of how alone I am. I click over Instagram and send a sexy photo to a man that I look forward to meeting once this pandemic is over. He responds appropriately, but it doesn't fulfill me in the way that I thought it would. I put my phone down beside me, face up. There are no new notifications. I cross to the living room, making my way into the kitchen. I pour a bowl of Cheerios, cursing as I narrowly step over pieces of cereal as they fall. I sit back on my bed, scrolling through social media. Everyone appears to be putting on a brave face. Everyone continuously says that we are all in this together. Everyone is so grateful. I tell myself that this isn't the worst thing that I've ever been through, so I know that I'm capable of surviving this. I want to be the epitome of being grateful. I slurp down my cereal, making a satisfying noise as the spoon hits the bottom of the now empty bowl. As I turn off the light, I place my body in the center of the bed. I was too aware of the space beside me as I slept, so I shifted, giving my body the wingspan that it needed. I desire knowing what it feels like to have a warm body beside me, comforting me in ways I didn't know that I needed. I want to know that someone is there living their life beside me. I used to joke around with my friends that because I worked so much, no one would ever know that I died unless I didn't show up for a shift that day. Now no one will know if I died unless I didn't wake up and tweet. There's something oddly devastating about wanting to be missed. I desire something that I don't know if I've ever felt. I roll over in the middle of the night, opening my eyes to see the shape of a can on my night scan. I prop myself up, grab the now warm can, and drink the last sip. The buzz has long worn off, but the beginning of a slight headache has appeared behind my right eye. There is something that I can fix tomorrow, I think to myself, even though I know there is nothing to fix. I am fine. Things are fine. The world will be fine. Yeah, things sure sound differently where there's no music playing. That was Catherine D. Morgan reading her essay, Wish You Were Here, from the 2020 Portland Book Festival. Now, let's hear from the hilarious novelist and essayist Gary Steingart in conversation with Portland writer John Raymond from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. Uh, and a quick note, parts of this conversation touch on mature themes and may not be suitable for all listeners. Here's Raymond introducing Steingart. Gary Steingart was born in Leningrad in 1972 and emigrated to the United States at age seven, a move that would set him on his literary course ever after. He was raised in the melting pot of Queens, New York, and published his debut novel, The Russian Debutante's Handbook, in 2002, for which he won the Stephen Crane Award for First Fiction and the National Jewish Book Award for Fiction. His second novel, Absurdistan, was named one of the 10 best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, and his subsequent works, the novel Super Sad True Love Story, The Memoir Little Failure, and the novel Lake Success, have all been best-selling, widely beloved books. And more than that, a kind of ongoing party, overflowing with sex, food, anguish, regret, triumph, and laughter, attended by a diverse, fascinating group of guests and presided over by perhaps the most amusing and solicitous of hosts imaginable, um, Gary. Um, his uh, most recent book, Our Country Friends, continues this party in a, in a new key. It's been called the first great pandemic novel, a masterpiece, and his best work yet, which I'll say is an honorific that all of his books seem to have um, acquired, so they apparently just keep getting better and better. Um, so please let us welcome Gary Steingart. Welcome. Thank you. It is so great to be back in Portland. Ah, yeah, we're so glad to have you. Yeah. Thank you for making the whole trip. I know oh, yeah. it is, it is a, a major endeavor these days. Oh, my God. Yeah, but you know, I've missed, this is the first, I, I came here into San Francisco. This is the first trip I've taken since uh, the pandemic, and I miss traveling so much, I was like enjoying the airline food. <laughs> I was thinking, this is really good. <laughs> wow. And water? Amazing. <laughs> 
Let, let them take care of you. Yeah. Um, so um, your new book was written during the pandemic yeah. when the walls had closed. Um, <laughs> and I have, I have uh, read in various interviews that you were working on a different book at the time when the, yeah. when the wave hit. Um, and so I'm really curious just to begin at the beginning here. Mm -hmm. Like, um, can you take us back to that moment of, sure. the, of the change of mind and mm -hmm. Was that a painful decision to have to make, or did yeah. it come easily? Like, has that happened to you before? Please, please let us know. <laughs> yes, I was about, it was very painful. Um, I was about 240 pages into a uh, dystopian novel. Um, I wrote, I've written dystopian novels before, Super Sad True Love Story, Absurdistan. They're all kind of dystopian. Yeah. My, my, my life is dystopian. <laughs> um, and I was 240 pages into a novel about a very New York-centric novel about a future in which NYU, New York University, uh, takes over Manhattan uh, and builds its own walls around it and has its own police force, and et cetera. It was a, you know, a, a satire of academia. I, I work at Columbia a little bit, so uh, NYU was our enemy, too. So yeah. I, I thought I'd score some points <laughs> yeah. with the dean, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> take that, NYU. Um, but I do live in NYU land. I live downtown and I'm surrounded by NYU dorms. Everyone, everyone throws up on me because everyone's drunk all the time. And God bless our students. Um, so I was 240 pages into it, which is no joke. That's about, what, two-thirds of a novel. And I, the pandemic was starting. We were living under a certain president. Um, and the confluence of all these horrifying dystopian events made me think, Really? An academic satire? Come on, you know. Yeah. Uh, it seemed a little bit lame, and also it was, you know, it was supposed to be, I, I, it was supposed to be very funny, and um, we were not living in funny times. Uh, so I decided to, as they say in San Francisco, to pivot. Um, <laughs> I decided to pivot. I abandoned my 240-page novel, and I thought I got to because I was going nuts. So I, I spend most of my time upstate. Uh, I'm, I'm in New York a little bit, but about 100 miles north of New York is where I spend the bulk of my time and where this novel takes place. Uh, for those of you from the area around uh, Rhinebeck, Hudson, Kingston, that part of uh, upstate. Again, and, and by the way, let me say that most New York upstaters will, will say New, that's not upstate. You know. <laughs> uh, Buffalo is upstate. You know. Utica, whatever that is, is upstate. Uh, but you, my friend, are in you know, the Hamptons north, um, which I disagree with because we don't have those, um, those pools that go on forever. What are they called? Infinity, Infinity. pools. Our, yeah. our pools are so finite, and I think <laughs> that makes us not uh, the Hamptons. Um, and fewer jerks, too, a little bit. Sorry, is this being broadcast? <laughs> to my Hamptons readers, I love you. You are so amazing. Please take me out on your helicopters and dune buggies. I'm, I really like your lifestyle. Um, so I was, uh, I was up there, and, and most of my friends began baking bread. This was the thing to do. Maybe you baked bread yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. But I was so angry that I had lost 240 pages. Plus, you know, you get paid when you submit your novel to a publisher, you know, that's that part of the advance. So I'm like, so I'm just not going to get paid this year? That's not good. Uh, so I decided to try my hand at another novel. And at the time, I was reading a lot of Chekhov. Now, some of my favorite Chekhov, if not all of my favorite Chekhov, is set in um, the countryside outside of Petersburg or Moscow. Um, and. Uh, specifically, obviously, his plays, Cherry Orchard, uh, mm -hmm. Uncle Vanya, but also his, uh, some of my favorite of his short stories, uh, trying to think of the English translations, uh, Gooseberries, About, uh, about Love, uh, The Man in the Shell, there's one other. Uh, and they're wonderful stories, and they're all about people, usually in their 40s, such as myself, um, sitting around with their friends of like age and talking about all the, usually talking about their friends and where their friends all went wrong and all the regrets they have, but they're really talking about themselves, you know. <laughs> and, you know, c'est moi, <laughs> that's what I do, that's how I roll in my 40s. So um, I thought, huh. I looked around, I, I said, you know, I'm in a country place, um, but all I'm missing is friends. And so I began to sort of channel my lonely child self when I came to America. Didn't know English real good, uh, didn't have any friends, and I would always talk to myself in Russian with these imaginary friends. And I started doing that with a lot of my friends who had left, who were either in New York and I was incredibly worried about them, or were in other parts of the world, um, because some of many of my friends had scattered. 
um, and sort of melding them into these characters, you know, so one right. character could, you know, contain seven, eight, nine of my friends, and then I would walk on, up and down this beautiful country road where I live, where just like in the book, there's sheep, and there's horses, and there's Brooklynites, you know, all the, all the wild animals that you yeah. hope to find there, and I began to Is there actually a dilapidated theater school of some kind? Like yes, so just like yeah. in the book, there is a dilapidated farm for hip young children, international place, uh, which has all these, you know, grading international signs on it. Sort of like the Soviet, if any of you use Russian, Artek, there was this camp in Crimea or somewhere around there for, you know. So it was like that, and it was completely abandoned, and now it's where teenagers went to do drugs and have sex on this giant stage. Uh, condoms and, you know, bottles of Jim Beam everywhere. And I was like, yeah, this, this is very dystopian for the countryside. This is really my speed. Um, so I began, so that was, for those who read the book, is, is, is incorporated into the novel too. So yeah, so, and, and you know, the other thing is I began to really pay attention to nature. I, I, as I said, I spend the majority mm -hmm. of my time there, but I was always, eh, you know, when I go there, we grill, we're social, etc. cetera, um, but I wanted to really pay attention to nature. I know all of my friends upstate all got those, um, como se dice, the <laughs> apps, you know, apps. Uh, <laughs> with which they can look up, you know, oh, this is, oh, a, yeah. this is a shrub, can, this is a tree. Yeah. Uh, and the bird, the bird song one is good. Bird song one is good. Yeah. That's a bird. We didn't even know that. You know, it took <laughs> us, you know, my friend called, my friend moved up there and he called the police and he's like, there's a murder happening outside. And, and the guy's like, can you point your uh, phone to the, and he, and, and he pointed and the guy said, that, that, that's an owl. Um, <laughs> and he said, you're just from upstate, right? You're just from the city. And he said, yes. He said, you'll get used to it. Don't worry. So all that kind of stuff was happening. It was, it was very funny. Um, and I also, there's a character in the book uh, called Steve, and Steve is a groundhog. And we do have a groundhog on our property named Steve. And he's, he's sort of like a libertarian, like he'll do whatever he wants. There's no, he's like reading Ayn Rand in his little hole, you know. <laughs> he eats everything, vegetables, our, our Christmas trees, which were planted, you know, to have Christmas trees, he ate all of them. He ate the roots and they kind of fell over. And, He's just a jerk, um, and I thought, wow, I can really work with this, you know, <laughs> this is my kind of animal, um, so he's in the book, so, yeah, I mean, it was tragic, but also deeply yeah. funny, too, I think, the, everyone's responses to what was happening. Yeah, so as you're cobbling together your, your um, cast of characters, this little party that you're curating there, um, these are composites of people that you know, largely, sure. um, I'm kind of curious, who came first and like how, like I think right. often reading a book we can have the feeling like, oh, this, of course this is the group of characters that are in a right. book, but it could be a, an infinite number of characters. How did, who came first and were there any that got left out at the mm -hmm. end? Was there mm -hmm. a, a, mm -hmm. a sort of, or did they all come together like at the same time? Well, first I wanted to start with, uh, usually I start with an avatar who is a kind of nebbishy Soviet Jewish furry little immigrant like myself. <laughs> so uh, I created the character of Sasha Sendorovsky. Um, I actually borrowed a name of a friend of mine who lives uh, in Seattle, Sasha Sindorovich. Aha. Uh, and I emailed <laughs> him and I said, I said uh, can I use your name? And he's like, well, he's a professor at UW. And he was like, well, now everyone who Googles me is going to be like, are you a failing writer living <laughs> yeah. in upstate New York? That's good ethics. That's just a different question, but I want to bookmark yeah. this because I'm yeah. wondering if you have any particular ethics about... Uh, uh, that's those kind of borrowings because I know that can become. Yeah. I've heard from various writers sure. that that can be an issue, yeah. and, and sometimes a lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I try to be good, but at the same time, if I'm denied the ability to write about people I know, what the hell am I going to write about? Yeah. You know, I had this student at Columbia who was writing about these gay dragons on a different planet, but they were clearly his parents. You know, yeah, uh, <laughs> um, clearly his parents. So. Write what you know, as they say. Um, yeah, I mean, there were definitely people... So after, yes, after Sasha yeah. Sindorovsky, I began to think of different characters. Um, I'm familiar with, for example, quite a few wealthy Koreans, so I thought of making one sort of Korean dandy out of all of them. Um, I'll give you an example of how I go about doing this. Yeah. So there was one guy I knew who... Um, was whenever he was talking to a woman that he really liked, he put his hand on his ear like this, and you know, it was really funny, because <laughs> then everybody knew when he was attracted That's to someone, right? Yeah. They were like, oh, there he goes again. 
Um, and so I use that. But I'll give you an example of how different, you know, in this book, because it's an omniscient narrator who gets into the minds of people in a kind of very Chekhovian ripoff or Tolstoyan or any 19th century Russian fiction, um, usually I would have a character like that and I would sort of just make fun of the fact that he has his hand on his ear. But in this book, I go into his mind as he's doing it and he's thinking to himself, oh God, I'm doing that thing again, aren't I? You know, how yeah. pathetic. Why can't I let go of my ear? You know. So uh, that was sort of the, if I made any advance in this novel over previous books, it's maybe a sense of more compassion toward my characters. They're all very flawed characters. Who the hell wants to write about unflawed characters? Uh, you know? But um, yeah, they're, 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 yeah. They're, um, it was important for me to, and I put together this menagerie of, uh, you know, I wanted to have mostly immigrants, um, immigrants from uh, Korea, India, Russia, because a lot of the friendships formed there were the same friendships I formed in a math and science high school called Stuyvesant in Manhattan. Uh, and um, so th these bonds were very important to me because we were such close friends because I think in some ways our parents never quite adapted to America. They brought so many of the, you know, they come from such problem, uh, uh, places with so many problems that they, the advice they offered us, the love they offered us, everything was sort of conditioned and, and we became sort of each other's brothers and sisters and parents as well. So that bond is, I think, the center of the book. It's, it's, it's being reviewed as the pandemic novel, but to me it's sort of a novel about friendship set against uh, the background of the pandemic. Yeah, and they're very beautiful, tender friendships. I mean, it's, and I've, I've, I wonder, that, that does seem like a shift in this book, uh, in a sense, because other ones have, have dealt, I think, maybe more primarily with those family dynamics, the son and father, uh, son and mother kind yeah. of uh, uh, nuclear family. Yeah. Um, but I wonder, I mean, does that have something to do with the, the aging of yourself and your yeah. friends that there has now, you guys have enough history now I that know. you actually are sort of yeah. stuck together as well in a certain sense. It's yeah. that, it's definitely that. It's also, I think, yeah, the first couple of novels and certainly my memoir was all about writing about my parents and I think that's what, immigrants do, we're sort of thrust in this role, immigrants in any society that we have to explain, you know, to the native born where, where we came from, what this experience was like, and also sort of writing it down for history, for posterity, because these are important things, I think, to talk about. Uh, almost every, probably every immigrant group in this country has had a beautiful tradition of literature and very contemporary literature, I think. Publishing houses love immigrant fiction at this point, they're just all over it. So that's nice that there's that kind of voice. Um, but yeah, I think what happened is that a lot of us, first of all, many of us had kids, such as myself. Right. And when you have a kid, you know, you sort of leave your own obsessive nature a little bit because there's, you're, hopefully your empathy muscles get moved a little bit more because there's somebody else that you have to think about 24-7 as opposed to your own problems, which are, of course, voluminous. Um, so that was definitely a huge change. And I had my kid eight years ago, and that's when I, that was when I started... It was right after my first memoir, and um, that's when I started writing my last novel, Lake Success, had a non-Russian protagonist, if you can imagine. <laughs> oh, my God. He was still Jewish, you know, baby steps, but uh, he was not uh, a big Russian dude. So um, that was important, but also I think what we realized, I just did a piece for Esquire about this coming out soon, what we realized was that we had internalized our parents to some extent. Mm -hmm. So we didn't really need them. Some of them had already <laughs> passed. Um, some have, are still living in Queens. But uh, we had already internalized them to such a point that by this point, and after all the analysis we had undergone um, collectively and individually, um, we, there, we already knew this is the final product. You know, it's not going to really right. change that much more. Right. So why not write about who we are now as as the children of immigrants, or as or as that 1.5 generation, those of us who came, um, you know, um, right after uh, came at eight or ten or nine, and and so we both speak the original language and uh, and speak English. Okay. Yeah. Um, so. <clears throat> Speaking of, of maturing and, and moving on, uh, the, the structure of this novel, I feel like it, you just alluded to that it is a much more, um, uh, it, it moves between characters very fluidly. It has this kind of, um, I mean, almost stream of consciousness mm -hmm. sort of uh, structure to it. Is that a structure that you have done before? I didn't think so. And is that something you feel like you would have been able to do 
as a younger writer, or is that something? <laughs> because there's a kind of, I'll say, uh, the, the, the book reads very fluidly and, and organically, but I think writers understand that that's a high degree of difficulty uh, that you're achieving yeah. there, you yeah. know, like moving in and out of different people and knowing when yeah, to cut yeah. and when not to. Yeah. Did that unfold for you in a way that was um, natural and easy? Because it feel, feels that way, or did it? It was the hardest thing I've ever done. It was really hard to do. And, and, and again, I was really buttressed by reading so much 19th century Russian literature because they do that so well. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. Um, yeah, I think it was the loneliness that did that for me. The fact mm -hmm. that here I was on this country road dreaming of so many people as opposed to being you know, back in the city partying with so many people, surrounded by so much noise. The quietness did it. I was hmm. able to concentrate because, yeah, I think that's the hardest thing I've ever done. I mean, that was like baking eight loaves of bread with, for each character. You know, that's a yeah. lot of yeast. Um, <laughs> and, 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 and it was really difficult to do that. Um, and, I, and I realized just what a task it was. Like, for example, I would never advise my students to do anything like this. This is something you do when you've already done a couple of books, I think. Um, but it was also, as I was saying before, it, was, it, it really made me feel like I loved these characters. Um, because as awful as some of them are, there's, for example, there's an actor, uh, and I've worked in television for quite a bit, and so I have met many, many actors. <laughs> and he's sort of this sexy hand grenade that goes off in the middle of this uh, country estate and sleeps with everyone except Steve the Groundhog and just, you know, <laughs> maybe makes eyes at Steve yeah. or vice versa. And, but, you know, molto sexy. And, um, and, and I thought, i got to sort of humanize him too if I'm going to do this. And so by the end of the book, there's a little bit more hopefully a little bit more of that, but um, uh, that kind of omniscient uh, narration does allow for a much closer, you really are living with your characters yeah. and not just looking at them in a kind of cinematic way and saying, there they are, you know. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, I feel like there's plenty of affection for your characters mm -hmm. in your other books as well. Though, oh, thank too. you, it's thank not, you. Yeah, I don't thank think you. that's like a revelation. No, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, um, thank you so much. But yeah, yeah. this one was perhaps mm -hmm. a little bit more gentle. Mm. Um, so let's see, I don't want this to spoil anyone's reading, but I, mm. I just am personally so interested. I don't think it's too crazy to imagine that in a pandemic book, there would be uh, some, some specters of death yeah. involved in yeah. some way. Yeah. Um, and uh, there is, to me, a, just a gorgeous like sequence of the book that takes place in a kind of fugue dream state sort of between worlds in a way and we won't tell you which which yeah. world everyone ends <laughs> up in but i was just wanted to ask you about that sequence and like what the um how that came out of you and what the well, if that was a plan or not uh, so i don't want to you know upset anyone's lunch plans here <laughs> um so we'll talk about something that may be a little squeamish inducing <laughs> especially to the male part of the audience um uh, for those of you who haven't read it, I read a New Yorker article uh, about a certain botched circumcision that happened to me as a child, uh, which reared its ugly head uh, in 2020. Uh, and I was in tremendous pain after this surgical procedure. I know. Um, and this happened around September when I was already about two-thirds of my way into the book. And all of a sudden, so I was planning, without too much spoilers, uh, planning to have a character in tremendous amounts of pain. You were planning that. I was planning that before. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I was in unbelievable amounts of pain. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, life imitating art to the nth degree. I can't yeah, believe. Yeah, that's really, you went overboard on that one. I, yeah, yeah, that's, that's some like, like method writing. It's doing, method writing, yeah. I, you know. <laughs> but I did not wake up one morning and stab myself in the groin, you know, uh, as a really good author would have. You know. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, Jonathan Franzen would be like, all right, time to get the uh, yeah. scalpel out and do the, uh, you know, anything for my readers. Uh, but I, I didn't do that. You know, I just, I just woke up one day and I was like, ah, help. And so this went on for about half a year. And during the worst parts of it, I would take these drugs, uh, including one anticonvulsant drug. The idea was to stop nerve pain because it was a cut nerve was the ultimate, yeah. And um, so some of these drugs caused hallucinations, suicidal ideation. Uh, I mean, it was like a lovely potpourri. I really, I can't recommend that article, the essay that he wrote in The New Yorker enough. It is a remarkable piece. Thank you. No, yeah. it's been, it's, I mean, the, 
the amount of people who have gotten in touch with me after that piece. Who can that talk was going to be later. my next okay, question. Talk was, about I, I just want to know the response. Yeah, the response I'd be really has been curious. unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, apparently botched circumcisions are a thing. Hey, who knew? Um, but yeah, so as I was entering these hallucinatory states, that's pretty much what I was thinking about as I was writing that part of the book. And the way these drugs worked is that they had a kind of plateauing effect. Um, so at one point in the day, I was actually not hallucinating and was able to whip out my laptop and work for three hours or so. So I was writing yeah. about a guy hallucinating and I, I just needed to think what was happening God, half an hour ago. That is insane. Isn't that insane? Wow. I mean, it's just, <laughs> we all had a crazy pandemic year, but this I think was <laughs> yeah. its own lovely thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, okay, I am curious about the responses, like, because I, I, I feel like even among friends that I know, like, there has been, uh, yeah. believe, you're not even privy to most of the conversations that are happening about this, but uh, yeah. um, I'm curious, stuff. like, what are, are there any um, so, uh, uh, notable sorts of... Uh, well, uh, the most notable thing recently is I've just been invited to present my penis to uh, the John Hopkins <laughs> School of Medicine, you know. <clears throat> I think that'll be fun, you know. Uh, the whole school will be like, oh yeah, that's a botched circumcision. Don't try this at home. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. So on the sort of right, the moils, the traditional Jewish snippers, are of course very angry and say, you know, this has only happened to this one guy. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Just this one guy. Uh, but my inbox, which is full of other guys saying uh, my whole, and in fact, when I did this article, I interviewed many of them who said, oh, you know, wow. my entire life has been derailed by this. Um, you know, um, my sex life, my ability to have intimacy with others, my ability to form relationship with even on a friend's level, you know. <laughs> and so many of the people I've talked to were circumcised as kids and it, they didn't want to be mentioned. One guy didn't even want his country to be mentioned. And this is a country of 150 million people, you know. <laughs> um, so you could tell just how scared men are because yeah. it's such a, it's a demasculation thing for them. And some of the men I talked to talked about, and I had this experience too after my botched circumcision, feeling they, they didn't even know which gender they were, this kind of very third gender phenomenon, because you're in pain when you're trying to express your masculinity. Yeah. So it's a truly horrifying thing. And the first thing I would say, I mean, obviously, it's in Jewish and Islamic tradition. And I want to be very careful about interfering with people's religion. But if you don't need to do this for any religion, I would say, you know, probably don't because the, a lot of the, and, and you know, when I was doing the New Yorker article, we researched all the mortality rates and all the other stuff. And the American Medical Association always said, this is a great procedure. You got to do this. So much fun. Your kid will just, oh, my God, who needs this thing? But the reality is, if you look at a, at a continent like Europe, which also has hundreds of millions of people who are not mostly circumcised, the, health, the genital health rates are the same, pretty much. In fact, yeah. a little bit better in terms of STDs over there. So, you know, I learned quite a bit, and I'm very happy, sorry, to talk about this. I know you came for a book, but... Um, and also, I've been dealing with a lot of rabbis, more progressive rabbis, who are saying, uh -huh. we're, we're, you know, or some of them are, are no longer saying you should do this, saying it's up to you, it's a very personal choice, there are different outcomes to this. So that's one thing that I want to help with, yeah. um, you know, get the message out. And you mentioned a guy on a bike the other day had something. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was, on, I was in uh, <laughs> 2nd or 3rd Avenue where I live, and this guy was whizzing, sorry, sorry whizzing <laughs> may be the wrong word, whizzing by on his bike, and he was like, how's your dick? <laughs> so New Yorkers have really come out for my penis, so to speak, you know. Um, and when I was when I was in the at the very height of my problems, like all my writer friends really rallied. You know, the writer Rivka Galchen, who's also a doctor, gave me all these wrecks. Mary Carr was incredible, um, and then uh, my friend Suketu Mehta, the writer, sent me these um, Indian dhotis, which is like a sarong type thing, which is much oh. easier to wear when you're in genital pain. And Salman Rushdie talked about his experiences with. Um, dealing with fanatics. So I was cut by these Chabadniks in uh, New York when I, was, when I landed there, these Lubavitcher folks. Mm -hmm. And he's, Salman has had some difficulty with other kinds of religious zealots. So there was a little bit of a yeah, you know, many kumbaya fans. moment yeah. there across yeah. the Muslim-Jewish divide. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> um, OK, let's change gears entirely yes. here. Um, but we can return to this as people want to. Yes, um, ask me more. Um, <coughs> all right. I love it. Um, Yum. Uh, um, so all right. You have had, uh, like as you mentioned, there there are kind of recurring um, uh, figures and ethnicities and and personalities in your in your work, um, Indian and Korean, yeah. um, and 
Are you married to a Korean? My wife's woman? Korean American. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. From from the West Coast. So this is just yeah. like a totally random, weird question that I'm sure. kind of curious about. But I feel like you might be well positioned. Mm-hmm. I am just curious if you have any opinions about current South Korean global popular culture dominance. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> I mean, absolutely yeah. do. So one of the characters in this book is, um, so there's the two Russians, Sasha and Masha, and of course they have a girl named Natasha. Um, and, uh, but she goes by Nat, so she's a little gender fluid, and she's in love with BTS, the Korean uh, pop uh, group, which I think is terrific. Uh, their fans are <laughs> rabid fans, and they did really funny things like, you know, they kind of uh, trolled the Trump campaign. Oh yeah, uh, right. It was really good, their politics are awesome, and they kind of, uh, they're really cool. So I, I began to listen and watch all these BTS videos, and wow! I mean, I don't, you know, I don't really speak Korean, but you know, are they the Beatles? I don't know, but they seem to be as beloved as the Beatles for yeah. sure. Um, and so Nat is obsessed with the BTS, um, at K-pop, and of course Squid Game and Parasite and all those things. It's fascinating how Korea has. I mean, this is a country of what 50 million people, yeah. but it really has made a cultural imprint that just makes me so happy. Is somebody who has so many, my wife is Korean American, my mentor Changri Lee uh, was Korean American obviously, and he got me my first publishing deal, so Koreans have been really nice to me, thank you. <laughs> if any Koreans here, uh, you know, Gamsahamnida, thank you, thank you very much. Um, and it's fascinating that Russia, a country far larger and with this incredible cultural tradition has been doing so little lately uh, under this unbelievable authoritarian system. All it seems to be doing is struggling to let, you know, to get a little breath into this incredibly right cramped, claustrophobic, awful society. So, you know, when it came to choosing a language for my kid, he's already studying French, but we were thinking, you know, Korean or Russian, how many languages can a kid learn? I guess a lot, but some, uh, yeah. some right? And I was like, you know, was, is it gonna be Korean or Russian? And I said, uh, let's, do, uh, let's do Korean, <laughs> let's do Korean. But on the other hand, uh, yesterday I had the best Russian meal in America at Kachka. Oh, so, isn't that great? Yeah. Holy crap! Yeah, right on. I mean, it really stunned me because Russian cuisine, God bless it, is not, you know, Tuscan or Thai cuisine. It's, there's a lot of potatoes. There's mayonnaise used as a condiment to everything. I mean, even wasps are like, wow, that's a lot of mayonnaise. I, I would hold back on that. That's, that's a hell of a lot of mayonnaise. Um, but it was absolutely incredible. These chanterelles and smetana kind of sour cream, this, um, oh, this rabbit in a clay pot. Good Lord. Sorry for the vegans out there, but, oh, the chanterelles are, are ve- no, they're not vegan, sorry, they're vegetarian. Uh, everything was just mind-blowing. And the vodka, there was a vodka infused with chanterelles. I, I've done mm. horseradish vodka and um, pepper and tarragon vodka, but mushrooms, what? Huh. Spectacular. The hostess came by, both the owners, they're just a lovely, lovely people. So. Uh, Kachka. And today I went to that yolk place, Friday yolk. Oh, Friday, I'm in love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. Solid, this town. Yeah. Jeez, yeah. I've only been here nine hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah, the food is just starting to reemerge, I feel like. It's, you know, mm-hmm. it was, the yeah. pandemic was, was hard on it, but yeah. Yeah, if Reed College wants to give me some bullcrap kind of position where I do nothing <laughs> and they pay me, I would relocate for a year or two. <laughs> Or Portland State. I love you. Yeah, yeah exactly. Think about it. Talk to your <laughs> congressperson. Yeah. We'll work on it. Work on it. Yeah. <clears throat> I, you know, just have to learn how to bicycle is my only thing. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty easy. Yeah. You think? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so you say. <laughs> with groin problems, it may yeah, not well, be the most natural. Yeah, we can do the scooters. Yeah, we've got the scooters Maybe now. get the scooter. Yeah, yeah start with that. that. Yeah. I have to sit on a saddle right now. <laughs> yeah. Let's... Uh, Goals, hashtag goals. Yeah. Um, let's see. So you had mentioned you mentioned your uh, so little television engagements that you mm. have done. Love um, I wonder if uh, uh, there, if you want to talk a little bit about uh, your adventures in the culture industry that way. Sure. Um, does this book have a future in the? Um, you know, moving we're, images, you think? We're getting nibbles. Uh, usually, you know, I sell all my books, then we have a writer's room, and then somebody says, nah, this doesn't quite Oh, work. but it goes as we far as a writer's room. Oh, it room. always goes very yeah. far. I get paid very handsomely. I love L.A. Um, um, but then people are like, is this really a TV series? It's just, you know, it's about a guy with a broken penis. How does that work? You know? <laughs> Um, seems huge to me. Yeah, yeah, it seems huge to you. <laughs> Thank you for that. That's so welcome. Nice. <laughs> See, this is what I mean about you know Pacific Northwestern hospitality. Um, 
Um, yeah, there's been some nibbles. Sorry, this just keeps going. <laughs> there's uh, nothing, yeah. <laughs> but I am, you know. <laughs> Try to say something that's not a double on time. I know, it's yeah. all, this is, this is my future, <laughs> yeah. till I die. Thanks, New Yorker. Um, yeah, um, I've worked on some great shows like Succession where I've, you know, sort of, I'm the... I read that you were brought in as a, a wealth expert of some kind. Sort of, like yeah. A, we were yeah. breaking down the second season and because I'd written about rich schmucks for um, Lake Success was a novel about a, a rich jackass. So, uh, I, you know, I became kind of, a, it was great. I, uh, the writing room was in London because uh, a lot of the writers oh. actually for that show are British. Maybe you didn't know that, but... Um, yeah, that kind of caustic humor is so easy for the Brits and a little harder right. for us more sensitive New Yorkers and L.A. people. Um, but um, they brought me in. It was great. So we helped to, I helped to break down the, the, that season and in, in terms of, you know, the... Have you done writing on the other shows, too? Have, yeah, have been, I'm writing yeah. on some shows now that are in development, so I can't quite comment now. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, right. But hopefully they'll be out next year. I would be nice. Um, just love it because these rooms are spectacular. I mean, it's like nine, ten, eight brilliant, brilliant people. It's a real think tank, you know, especially these very yeah. smart shows, these HBO shows. Um, everyone has an incredible pedigree. There's great playwrights, there's novelists, there's people yeah. who've worked on, you know, stuff like the um, uh, Colbert or other shows where you have to know a lot about current events. Um, so uh, it's just such a pleasure. It doesn't feel like work at all. Everyone just sits around making jokes all the time. And, yeah. then, and then you get a show out of it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, here's a, another sort of more random question. Um, like, yeah, you're often construed as an as a immigrant writer. That yeah. has like, been a part of your thing. But you're also a food writer yeah. and, a, and a sex writer and a, <laughs> and a, um, and a science fiction writer. Uh -huh. I mean, like many of your books have had speculative sort of elements including to them. Including this one. Including this one. And um, I, uh, I guess I'm a little bit curious about your relationship to science fiction and like mm -hmm. what, uh, mm -hmm. how, how formative that was for you as a kid and if that is, um, if you are in any sort of, um, you know, argument with science fiction as it exists, or if it's just a pure mm. sort of uh, mm. pleasure for you, if it just is where your mind goes? Yeah, I have to say that um, when I was growing up, one of the first things that I read that helped me learn English was uh, Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. Uh, and I know Apple is making an Isaac Asimov Foundation series, which supposedly is not good, oh, but right. who knows. Um, <laughs> give it a try, I don't know. But um, yeah, I, I read those books um, as a kid and, and you know, bought all the, all the novels that came with it. And um, yeah, I was a real nerd at the time, obviously. But also, you know, when you're a lonely kid, science fiction, that's why, you know, novelists like Octavia Butler and Ursula Le Guin are so wonderful because especially if you're feeling marginalized as I was as an immigrant, as a Soviet, back when being Soviet was the worst thing you can imagine, um, you know, uh, for me, the idea of being on another planet seemed incredibly great, not in a <laughs> Jeff Bezos kind of obnoxious way, but like, you know, get me out of this planet, this kind of sucks, and they, they just circumcised me a day ago, why, why is this happening? Um, and so, um, I would say it was very important, which is why Super Sad True Love Story, of course, was a dystopian yeah. book, and also coming from the Soviet Union, which was a, a dystopian society, that also treasured its science fiction because science fiction was one of the few ways you could critique the society. Uh, you could say, well, that's not us, it's some other planet, but it was very clear to, to smart readers what, what they were critiquing. Yeah. So to me, science fiction, I mean, when we're writing a dystopia, we're really writing about today. It's never, you know, 1984 was not about some future. It was about Stalinism as it was happening in 1948 when Orwell wrote it, uh, the same for Brave New World, etc. So to me, it's or the same for Margaret Atwood. So it's always a way for me to um, access, to talk about what's happening now. In this book, there's a device, there's an app called True Emotions, which functions as a kind of plot device in this book because it gets people to fall in love with other people very quickly. Uh, you look at a photograph of yourself and then you fall in love with the person who's in the photo. So it's a kind of like Puck in uh, Midnight's Summer Dream something. Uh, sorry, Shakespeare. Uh, 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 Midsummer's Night Dream. There we go. Jeez. Can you imagine? I teach at Columbia, but Shakespeare, I don't know, so good. Um, but yeah, it's a kind of device that, that moves the plot along. Yeah, okay. Um, all right, I think I've just got the signal that we can oh. open it up to uh. other people's questions, so maybe we should do so. Please. Um, uh, yeah. How about this fellow? Just, just because he had his 200th uh, anniversary of his birthday this week, but what, what do you 
Ooh, Dostoevsky, yeah, that's interesting. I would say, so the question for those who can hear is, is what's my relationship with Dostoevsky? Because he just turned 200, which is the longest living Russian ever. Uh, <laughs> life expectancy is usually 63 for Russian men, so this guy is like three Russians in one. I mean, look out, look out, Abraham. Uh, this dude is long living. Um, really complicated. I would say, I mean, I would say probably the least influence of the major Russian writers in terms of Chekhov's incredibly soulful portrayals of, of his characters, uh, Tolstoy's incredible uh, historical canvases and also sense of fun, um, um, Gogol, especially Gogol, who is, uh, with Dead Souls, was so instrumental. I mean, that is the Ur-Russian satirist. Uh, and everything Gogol has written about um, about Russia in the 19th century can be applied to 21st century Russian without missing a beat. I mean, it's just a mad, amazing how that stuff never ends. Oh, Turgenev, uh, Fathers and Sons, is a, a novel that many Americans don't read but should. It's 200 pages, it's yummily fast, and it's about, it's the best novel about Fathers and Sons ever, or, or in, really any parent and child. Dostoevsky is very complicated to me. I mean, I, I, I love, of course, the, the moral, the morality of his, uh, of his fiction, it's, or the exploration to morality and religion. Uh, I think maybe in, in, in terms of novels of ideas, he's as influential as any Russian novelist, if not the most influential Russian novelist. So in some ways, I see him as a precursor to other writers. Uh, it's interesting, one of the writers I admire for craft very much is Nabokov. And Nabokov loved Tolstoy and Chekhov and hated Dostoevsky. Um, and I do agree with that. I mean, as, a, as, a, as somebody who tries to style his prose, there was some clunkiness even in Russian compared to the other greats, I would say. That's just my opinion, of course. Um, and also the anti-Semitic stuff was a little much. He went a little, you know, I mean, everyone had to do anti-Semitism except for Chekhov, who was lovely about that. But he, he tried a little extra hard to hate Jews uh, more than the average Russian. The, I mean, there's a scene in uh, Brothers Karamazov where, you know, somebody introduces the idea of blood libel, that, you know, Jews are basically eating Christian kids. And Dostoevsky's uh, stand-in, I think, Alyosha, right, is like, Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. It's a hard one, you know. And you're like, really, 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 Fyodor? You, you, you think juicy Christian kids? Go gamble some more, you schmuck. But other than that, no. Of course, I can see the importance of Dostoevsky. <laughs> Major caveat there. But other than that, real good, real good. Yeah. Well, you, you can. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, over there. Do you see a future where you would return to the 200 page book? It's so funny, many people who have been traumatized by NYU are desperate to have me uh, write this novel. <laughs> the question is, how much will NYU pay me to stop this novel? And I know they're so flush these days because in the novel they had, you know, NYU has all these, uh, NYU Abu Dhabi, et cetera. In, in my novel there were 700 campuses. So there was, uh, there was an, in, not just an NYU Portland, there was an NYU Salem, you know, uh, which also owned part of Salem. It was this, you know, incredibly delicious uh, NYU uh, archipelago. Um, will I return to it? I don't know. Let's see. My feeling is, so the problem is I'm having is this, you know, when people kept reviewing it as the pandemic novel, and I have no, I mean, these were very nice reviews, so I'm not, right. <laughs> thank you everyone. But I think every novel we're going to write, if you're going to write about the present tense, every novel we're going to be writing is about not just the pandemic, which obviously isn't going away because we don't have the political will as a country, as a society to crush it, uh, but also there's going to be more horrors along the way. This is just the beginning. Um, you know, if you look at just your wonderful part of the world, right, Portland, Seattle, what happened last summer, all those deaths, that's, that's going to keep happening, obviously, and that's going to keep getting worse. And, uh, you know, I live in New York uh, half the time, which is going to be underwater fairly soon. You can already see the, the rise in sea levels, a couple more storms, the subways won't function. I mean, the list of problems that we're going to have, global migration as, as, as you know, the, the global south is going to be hit even worse than we are, water shortages. I mean, it's, a, it's a dystopian nightmare. In the book, um, Nat, who's eight years old, one of the characters refers to her as Generation L, as in last, you know. So if we're going to be writing about the present day, it's going to be impossible not to write it. The same way that writers who were writing during World War I or World War II or Tolstoy writing about uh, you know, the Napoleonic Wars, it's just going to be very hard to ignore that as, as, a, as a background. Well, Tolstoy was writing it 50 years later. But in any way, in any case, um, I don't see how a serious novelist can ignore these things or, uh, if she's writing about, about the, the, the present. So 
The question is, you know, to what extent does that funny novel, how is it going to even fit in, that novel which stresses humor is going to even fit in um, in a world where much worse things are happening and where I feel like, and, and don't get me wrong, Our Country Friends is hopefully it's still a very funny novel, right? Right? Yeah, okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but in a way to deal with all these uh, calamities, uh, and, and not to mention the political calamities that will still continue to happen in, in a society that's ours that has clearly gone off the rails in every way possible, um, where one party is simply advocating violence and, and takeover in a Weimar kind of way, you know, uh, Nazi during Weimar kind of way. So I don't know. I, I'll probably be writing about all this from Montreal, but or, or Vancouver, <laughs> after having fled. Um, it's so funny, I collect watches. This is a hobby that began under Trump, and, and, and my friends always ask, ask me why, and I did a story in the New Yorker about this collection, and there was a guy, this, this Jewish collector, who said, you're a good Russian Jew, you know that it's gonna be time to flee across the border with your satchel full of Rolexes soon, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so we'll see if, if, we'll see what happens, but yeah. I, I, I probably, if I'm returning to that novel, that means things have magically gotten better, <laughs> and we, we've passed that carbon deal or whatever, and you know, I think that is an excellent moment for us to uh, end on a real downer like that. Oh, thank you. Sorry. <laughs> By the book, um, it's funny. It's funny. <laughs> yeah, it is. A, it's an amazing, hilarious book. Thank you so much, Gary, for being oh, here. It was you. such an incredible pleasure. Thank you. thank you, everyone. Thank you. And yeah, please, you guys, Portland. treat yourselves to the book. It's really, it's a fantastic book. Thank you, thank you everyone. That was Gary Steingart in conversation with John Raymond from the 2021 Portland Book Festival. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcast, with production oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson, and I'm the executive producer. Special thanks to Literary Arts marketing staff, Joe T. Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of The Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.